Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is Mr. Jordan Harbinger, who I've actually had on the show, but I wanted to have back because we didn't get a chance to go deep enough in our conversation last time. Uh, And to be honest, I just find him very engaging. I think he's got an incredible amount of wisdom when it comes to things like conversations, communications, uh, influence, networking, being able to connect with people. Uh, and is just such a well-rounded, really, really interesting, interesting guy. So uh, Jordan is often referred to actually as the Larry King of podcasting and is a Wall Street lawyer uh, turned interview talk show host, which is quite the fascinating uh, turn of events. He's also a communications and social dynamics expert, which is one of the things that we're going to dig deep into on the show today. Uh, Jordan has hosted a top 50 iTunes podcast, The Jordan Harbinger Show, uh, for over a decade, which receives over 4 million downloads per month. That is absolutely insane. 4 million downloads a month. Ah, it's crazy. Uh, making the show one of the most popular podcasts in the world. And on the show, he deconstructs the playbooks of the most successful people on earth and their strategies. Uh, they share their strategies, perspectives, and practical insights with the rest of us. So with his business sense, his extensive knowledge of the industry, and very contemporary approach to teaching, uh, these things make him one of the most sought-after coaches in the world. And so today, we are going to dig deep into the art of the conversation and the art of the interview and improving your social skills, right? So we're going to talk about things like verbal communication and nonverbal communication. We're going to talk about how to actually improve your communication skills with some specific insights, tools, uh, and and tips. And Jordan and I are going to really break down uh, why language is so important and some of the different pieces that, that you need to know, whether for your relationship whether for your business uh, or managing your team or just for everyday life. So we start off small with things like, you know, getting rid of small talk and how to how to move through that. And uh, we start to go a little bit deeper into understanding how to improve your body language, how to look at other people's body language uh, and a variety, a variety of other just incredible topics. So just a quick reminder before I bring Jordan on, uh, definitely, guys, head on over to the Man Talks community. Join the community over there. Uh, it's going to be a great resource for you. We've got some amazing conversations with men from around the world. And if you want to dive deeper, if you want to join a brotherhood of men that are helping to create some change in their life, that are committed to leveling up their mindset, finding a deeper sense of purpose, uh, and and wanting to do that in an environment where all these men are holding you accountable, definitely check out the Man Talks Alliance. Now, this is a group that I personally run with Traver Bohm, who's one of the head coaches of it. And uh, Traver was on one of the last shows. If you haven't checked that episode out, I strongly, strongly recommend that you do because it's incredible. And, and feel free to apply the for the Alliance. We are running it ongoing now, uh, and uh, it is an incredible program. So that's all I'll say about that. Uh, and uh, without any further delay, please welcome Mr. Jordan Harbinger. Hey, thanks for having me on, man. It's been a minute, I think, since we did this. Yeah, it's been it's been a couple, and it looks like uh, you know a good amount has changed on, on your side and my side as well. Uh, so we're going to dive straight into that here. But first, 
Uh, I got to ask the question. Our, our audience loves this question, which is tell us a story about a defining moment that made you who you are today. So there's a lot of stories, I think, that have contributed to this naturally. When I was little, though, I'll go back to something that I don't talk about constantly or, and isn't a cliche in my personal history here. When I was younger, probably 13 or so, I was so painfully shy that I would skip school a lot. And it, it wasn't like I hate school. It was more like everyone's looking at me. I don't know what causes that. I guess just general run-of-the-mill social anxiety that goes un unchecked. And I would skip school and I was bored a lot, so I went on the internet. And this is like 1993. Not a lot of internet. A lot of It's sort of even more Wild West than it is now. And everybody was very technically inclined. So I made a lot of friends with adults. And some of the adults that I met were these hacker type people. And one thing I started to learn how to do really early was wiretap phones and clone cell phones. No way. Yeah. So I became really interested in other people's conversations. And I started listening to people in my neighborhood talking on cell phones, people in my neighborhood talking on landlines. I mean, I really got into it. And I would spend some days like six hours listening to other people talk to each other, which is now, you, if you're an adult and you do that, you gotta like seek mental help or something. But when you're 13 <laughs> and you're an only child, it's just sort of like beats not cable TV. We didn't even have cable TV. So it sort of beat just watching reruns of Perfect Strangers, you know? And hearing what adults sound like in an uncensored form was really eye-opening because it, when you're a kid, adults kind of, even your own parents, they are kind of two-dimensional. They yell at you, they give you food, they tell you to do stuff, they drive you around, teachers might give you homework or something like that, and they might give you encouragement, mentorship, things like that. But you don't see their feelings. You don't see their personal problems. Nobody walks up and says, hey, we're having trouble paying the mortgage this month because dad didn't get enough hours. Like no kid in a healthy family environment anyway is really experiencing that. So at age 13, when you're still sheltered by your parents, but you're starting to become curious about other people and you think you're the only one that has feelings, it was very eye-opening for me to be listening to my neighbor get a divorce and he's talking to his soon-to-be ex-wife and he's like such a jerk you know, to her and they're really standoffish. And then he'll talk to his sister and he's like, why is my wife leaving me? And he's talking to his mom and then he's a little boy and then he's talking to his buddies. He's like, whatever, bro, I don't even care. We're gonna tear it up this weekend at the bar. And I'm just like, this guy, not only does he have multiple personalities in front of all these people, but if he acted like he did around his mom and his sister with his wife and he just opened up and said all this stuff, he wouldn't even be in the situation in the first place. And I was 13 years old thinking about this. <laughs> so that really opened my eyes to the idea that not only am I the not only do I have all these feelings or whatever as a kid, but uh, everybody is a three dimensional emotional human being, and everybody's got all this crazy stuff going on in their life. So that's what really got me interested in people, and then of course, what got me interested in people got me interested in social engineering, which got me interested in all kinds of persuasion, influence, the whole dating scene when that thing was hot for a minute. You know, and, and now the being an interviewer on the Jordan Harbinger show, which requires curiosity and introspection and digging for people's stories, because I know that they're in there. You know, I know they're in there. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that was so transparent to me and, and, and has always been transparent to me is just like your 
your passion for exceptional conversations. And so I love getting the, you know, I like, I almost picture it's like a modern day version of, you remember as like little kids, like little, little kids way back in the day or in the cartoons, they'd have like the tin cans with like a wire, you know, like a string attached to the tin cans and they'd be speaking through the tin cans to each other. You ever seen that? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. It's like, for whatever reason, I'm like, oh, you're like the modern day version of, of, you know, this curious kid just trying to like have conversations with other people, but, you know, like listening in and understanding human dynamics. And yeah, I, I loved all that, man. That was su- such an exceptional story. And so, you know, I do want to talk about the art of the conversation you know, the art of, of what makes great questions and good interviews, but you know, a lot's gone on in, in your life for the last little while. And so I want to talk a little bit about some of the career shift, because obviously, you know, you mentioned the Jordan Harbinger show and you've kind of branched off onto your own, um, which is exceptional. And, and it looks like from the outside, your show is doing incredibly well. So tell me a little bit about that career shift, because I would imagine that that is a massive, you know, that's a little bit of an, of an identity change. So, so tell me a little bit about what prompted that and, and how that's been so far. Sure. So what I can say, because I'm involved in litigation against my old show and my old company, is that I really, it was a very toxic place for me to be in at that point. And a lot of my team couldn't function there and wouldn't function there, so to speak. And so I negotiated with my business partners to split amicably from the company. And we created a deal. And then that deal was not that that deal did not go through for various reasons. I'm going to avoid being super descriptive here, but I think people can read between the lines. And so I ended up in a situation where I wasn't going to wait for the other shoe to drop, I was just going to start over and do my own thing. Because the writing is kind of on the wall, when 90% of the team is disengaged from the work. Mm. And so ended up getting essentially pushed out of that old company, which at at first was like a giant disaster. 90% of the team was also gone. I ended up bringing those team members onto my new venture. So it kind of backfired in, I think the intent from the old company backfired because I ended up not really having to train anyone. You know, I, I was working with people that I'd worked with in the previously. So my team, my my roster barely changed. And we ended up launching within days, literally. I mean, I don't, I didn't miss one single episode in terms of the release schedule. I ended, I stopped hosting the, the old show, which was called The Art of Charm, started hosting the Jordan Harbinger show the following day that I would have released something on the old show. So I really didn't skip a beat, didn't have to, signed a new deal with my network, And there was a whole lot of stress there because who are you when you lose what you've built over 11 years and have to start over? Are you the same person, right? Who are you as a entrepreneur, as a show host, as a human, like who are you? And I know that sounds grandiose, but imagine if you lost your business of X number of years and had to start it over again, what the heck are you, who are you? Like what part of you has changed also? You're not just a, guy who worked on an assembly line at Ford, and now you're a guy who works on an assembly line at General Motors, you just complete, complete right turn. And so for me, that was really jarring, but also opened up a lot of possibility. Because it, instead of, and I'm still coming out of this, right? I'm st- Of course, I'm still in litigation and everything, and, and along with multiple parties against the old company. But what I mean is there's a lot of 
there's a lot of opportunity that you don't even see. You think, okay, I know I wanna do interviews, I really love doing it, and people are like, you know, everyone's full of ideas and they're trying to kind of derail you unintentionally, like, oh, why don't you start a YouTube channel? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? I'm like, look, I don't really need ideas. I'm looking for real help. You get that kind of help from your non-entrepreneur friends or from your entrepreneur friends. Like <laughs> they don't, re the people who haven't yet realized that ideas are not the part that you need more of. <laughs> so, um, and I really decided to lean into it. And that's why even just now, 10 months in, I'm like, you know, I wanna do more interviews in person. I wanna get them all on video. I wanna change the way that I do the interviews. I wanna change my prep and show flow. I wanna do different sorts of bits for the show. I wanna engage more on social media. You know, I was doing social, but I, I have a love-hate with Instagram because it, it's such a distraction as a creator. And so I'm like, okay, I'm gonna hire for this and then do the part that I enjoy, which is interacting with the show fans. Mm -hmm. But not the part that I hate, which is like, hey, do I have to film myself brushing my teeth today because I need a story for Instagram. Like I, I won't do that because it's it creates more junk food for the internet and also is kind of just, it, it, as a creator, as somebody who likes deep conversations, having a 15 second, this is what I'm eating now is kind of like the antithesis. So I went through a really crazy year and I just was talking to my wife who also handles our accounting. It was a massively profitable year despite having to start over from zero in February. So. This has changed the course of my life and my team's life because any fear that we had that we couldn't make it starting over is, has been dashed because not only did we start over, it was unexpected, we were left with nothing and we're more profitable than we were the any in any other year that I've actually been in business. Hmm. I love that, man. I love that. It, it sounds like, you know, a good amount of, of creative freedom has come out of this. And, and, you know, on top of that, a deeper sense of, of your own expression and like what you want to bring to the table. So can you just elaborate a little bit more? Because I think, you know, you're talking about transition, you're talking about, you know, letting go of identity in some ways, uh, you, you know, you're talking about, <laughs> challenges, betrayal, like there's so many things in here. And, and, you know, I do want to go on to a few other things. But can you just touch a little bit on what was made possible for you personally out of this transition? And, and then secondly, um, actually show how it's how it's deepened your creative, your creative expression? Yeah. So the first thing that I noticed when we made the switch was how happy the team was. You know, I've never seen a group of people so happy to get fired in their entire life. <laughs> and I was sort of in freak out mode because I'm like, oh my God, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna do it? It's gonna be so hard. And my team was like, you got this. We followed you. You're the one that did all the work in the old team. And I'm like, no, there were so many things coming coming in the back scenes that you guys don't know about. And they're like, what? Like the accounting that your wife does, the organization that your wife does, the production that we do, the marketing that this guy does. And like, they really were so gung-ho and that was really inspiring. And so they kind of, pulled me together. It was kind of Humpty Dumpty, right? Um, except for they succeeded, I hope. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, and so they kind of pieced everything back together and we worked really hard this year to do it. And I was so focused on the task at hand and getting out of the rut and stabilizing everything that I didn't really notice how much we were growing. And I look at all of our team members and how happy everyone is relative to how miserable we all kind of were towards the end working with the other folks at the old company. And it, it was really interesting because we have gotten so many, so many more things done this year than we would have done before. And I think it's because people aren't avoiding work, they're actually leaning into it. So that was amazing. We get a lot of show fans writing in now saying, 
The Jordan Harbinger show is even better than you were before. This is your best work. And it's been hundreds of people saying that. So I know it's not just kind of one or two people trying to make us feel better. And I'm like, okay, why is it better? And I always, because I can't put my finger on it either. And people are saying, I don't know what it is. There's just a little bit of extra energy. There's just a little bit of extra focus. There's just a little bit of X, Y, Z. And I'm thinking that's really interesting because in my opinion, I'm doing the exact same thing energy-wise in terms of focus. Like I, I didn't think I was unfocused or not as energetic or any of these other adjectives in previous episodes of other shows. And yet the audience universally has said, there's just something else going on. And people go, yeah, it's nice, you own 100% of everything, and that may well be part of it, but I don't think about that. And I think it's there's some sort of congruency in place now that wasn't there before that I can't quite put my finger on. And I think what it might stem from is I don't have a ton of outside pressure. I don't have, I don't have to sell a product or something like that that's not really in line with what I'm talking about on the show. I can interview whoever I want. And it's kind of, I kind of always could do that, but there was always kind of a negative Nancy waiting to complain about it in our Slack group or, you know, in my email inbox. And I don't have to worry about that anymore. You know, all those complaints get directed towards my attorney now. So it's it's kind of nice to have that. And I would have thought that this would have been such a stressful year and it would have really burned us all out and we would have been kind of, you know, in this fog, but we have never been more focused or more happy. It's so ironic. And it, what it tells me is that not only is this traumatic business breakup the best thing that I could have done, it's probably long overdue. And in retrospect, it's one of the best things that's ever happened to me. Because even if our deal had gone through with the old company, I would have been stuck working together with them. Because, you know, there were terms in there that were like, I have to promote their stuff and they've got to, you know, pay me this and that. And I'm like, this would have just fallen apart later, except for I would have lost even more time and I would have had to be in contact with this this mess, you know, every day to try to do business. And I would have been having, I would have had to subject my assistant and my wife to dealing, we would have still had, you know, the tentacle, the toxic tentacle in in our business. But now that everything, quote unquote, fell apart, it's it actually ends up better because, we don't have any contact, right? It's kind of like, yeah, talk to the attorney and then a month later there's a conference call that I'm not even on and then we move forward a little bit. In the meantime, I get to focus on my business. So that kind of thing can really be a blessing in disguise. And you you hear this all the time, couples that get divorced and then like they're much happier individually and you know whether or not they get along better after that is is it kind of up in the air, but there's tons of people that are like great parents and miserable spouses, right? So there, this is kind of one of those changes for us where we were ready to leave the nest years ago, but everyone was, and especially me, was a little bit too scared to do it because I thought, why would I do that? I've got a seven, multi-seven figure business. Why am I gonna change things up now? You know, they'd never let me go in peace anyway. It would be such a big mess. Now that mess is reality and, and it doesn't get worse right? It, it only gets better from here. The Band-Aid has been ripped off. I know deep down I would not have elected to have it happen this way because I would have been scared of the consequences. So that since that decision was made for me by the antics of others, it actually worked out so well for me and my team that uh, a couple of other CEOs who've heard this story, uh, they told me in a few years, you're going to want, you're going to be like, I should write that guy a check for the for this whole thing. And I totally see that. You know, it sounds ridiculous. And of course, I'm not going to be cutting a check anytime soon. 
but you, they're right. You sometimes run into these walls so hard that you end up knocking them down. Does it hurt? Yes, but would you have just stood outside the wall for the next decade having it hold up your progress? You know, there are things I'm doing now that I thought I'd never be able to do because I would have needed approval from business partners who didn't just wanted to, a new Porsche instead of, you know, growing the business. And now I don't have to worry about that. There's no, there isn't, there isn't that anchor on yeah. our progress. And it's, it's an amazing feeling that I wasn't prepared for. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that it's interesting last week, I interviewed Philip McKernan. I don't know if you know who he is. Of course. But yeah. He, amazing. And we were talking about a few things and something that you said just resonated. And he said, uh, you know, we were talking about masks and alignment and, you know, following intuition, all the stuff that Philip talks about. Um, but he ended up saying, you know, either, either we dissolve the masks ourselves or life will rip them away. And I think that one of the most incredible things that you're talking about is, is sometimes it is a blessing when life takes those things away because we don't, we don't know. We're so attached. We're so attached to a situation and, you know, where and I've been in that situation. I've been in a situation where I've been letting fear, like whatever the anxiety of just the thought of the unknown future, what things would look like sort of take over. And I love hearing your part of the story of like, look, this has been so, so incredible and so good. And it's, and it's allowed, it sounds like the impact is that it's allowed your creative freedom to really flow, which is, which is great. And, and with that, we're going to segue into that area. Um, because one of the things that I really wanted to jam on you with is, is just something around the art of the conversation. You know, how, how do we have really good conversations? What's it, what, what can, what consists of really good, good conversations? So let's just start there because I think that one of the things that you have done time and time again, uh, and some of the most amazing people that you've interviewed is you're able to construct a really, really engaging conversation. So let's just start at the foundation of what makes a good conversation. Yeah, I, I you know, it's funny. I'm my tempting, tempted to say your answer is as good as mine, but I really don't have, I don't have something where I say this is the foundation for a good conversation, but I will tell you some habits that I do that I've found over the years have resulted in better interviews. And uh, that's probably the answer to your question. So feel free to cut me off and let me know if I'm going in the right direction here. But the first thing I think you need to have that most interviewers don't bother doing is you need to have done your homework. And I know that homework varies for the type of interview that people want to conduct, but there's just a shocking amount of, the bar is low, let me put it that way, when it comes to <laughs> trying to find what you can do to research. And, and you and I were just talking about some shows, other shows prior to this, where the uh, some intern reads or skims the book of the guest, makes a one sheet that the host sits there and holds, and then they ask you questions that you would get asked if a ninth or 10th grader was interviewing you for their school newspaper. And <laughs> that is a lot of podcasts, and a lot of, even journalists, I'm not even saying podcasters, We've all seen the journalist interview where the book is called, let's say, Spartan Up, and it's Joe DeSena, and they go, what inspired you to write this book? And it's like, oh, on page one, where I talk about what inspired me to write this book, I explain, you know, it's like this, it's just very, very basic. So for me, I'm always going as deep as I can. You and I talked about a mile wide and a mile deep. I'm yeah. looking for the mile deep on each guest. You know, if I'm reading a book that was maybe the result of a TED talk from an AI researcher who was the president of Google China, which is Kai Fu Lee, I'm actually researching him right now. 
I want to read that whole book about AI. And then, of course, I want to watch that TED Talk. And then, of course, I want to see what he's invented, because I think he invented essentially speech recognition as we know it um, was was his jam back in the 90s. And so I want to talk about all those. And I know that he had a cancer scare and it changed the way that he looks at not only AI, but humanity. I want that stuff, you know, and you don't get that from reading the back of the book. You don't get it from Wikipedia. You don't get it from looking on YouTube at what another journalist has done because they didn't do their homework. So garbage in, garbage out on the on the prep. And so I want to make sure that the foundation for the conversation is that I know this person's work so well that they're they're actually shocked, mm. you know, because you, you say, I read the book. It was great. And they're like, wow, really? And they don't believe you. And then you start talking and they go, okay, you did read the book. Well, get, you know, get a load of this since you're familiar with the basic concepts in the book. It makes for such a more engaging and interesting interview because they think that as media or, or any conversation, let, let's say a regular journalist interviewing someone, that, that's analogous to small talk. Like, let's say you wrote a book and I go, hey, Connor, good to see you, man. We're, we're in the hotel lobby somewhere, right? For some event. I heard you wrote a book. How's that going? That's a journalist interview, right? It's small talk. There's no depth. I might ask a follow-up question that seems pretty astute, but I thought of it beforehand. And that's basically all that's going on. What we want is the real conversation. We want to snap the our conversation partner out of that, not just an interview partner, but any conversation partner out of that and get them talking about something real. That's what we're doing on on the Jordan Harbinger show on the interviews is it's not just tell us about how AI is growing so quickly. It's like, I read the book, here's this thing from the book that you seem passionate about and we'll start right there. Not what inspired you to write the book. That's already answered in the book. The audience kind of doesn't care. You know, it's a filler question. Yeah. So just dispense with that garbage, whether you're interviewing somebody on tape or whether you're just do, having a conversation and then go from there. You know, if someone says, I'm writing a book about artificial intelligence, you might say, wow, yeah, do you, are you in the Elon camp where they're gonna destroy the world or are you <laughs> in another camp where it's the best thing that ever happened to us? And they're gonna, they're gonna go, well, all right, so you know a little bit about AI and how people feel about it. That's a different starting point than how's your book going? Well, you know, it's a process. Uh, see you later. That's all you get from that. <laughs> so like the starting point should be where most people finish mm. in a conversation, which is like mild disclosure, a little tiny bit of vulnerability. Everyone gets uncomfortable and goes home. Like I want to start there. I want to say, you had a cancer scare earlier. How are you feeling? Oh yeah. How did, how did the cancer change the way you feel about artificial intelligence? That's a starter question where the person goes, okay, this is a real interview and all of the sound bites and all the other crap that they gave everyone else goes out the window. Mm. Uh, I love that, man. I love that. I think, you know, it's it's interesting because I've interviewed a few people that I've been able to catch off guard. And, you know, I, I, I do genuinely admire your work for that reason. Uh, I interviewed a guy named Mark Rober, who I'm not too sure if you've had him on your show yet, but he was a NASA engineer. I, Totally, totally incredible. Um, he's doing some projects with Apple now and he, you know, he's got a YouTube channel, blah, 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 blah. But it's one of those things where I did so much background research and I watched his videos and I like researched him and studied him. And I found that the guests that I've had on the show that I've taken that sort of approach with, it's, it's fundamentally changed things because it moves things from small talk. And, you know, I think that brings me into the next, the next space is 
like how do we and, and this is sort of an everyday conversation piece but how do we start to move past small talk like why is that so relative for people and and how do we start to move past it so small talk what well the first question is why is small talk so universal? I guess maybe, can you rephrase that so that I'm clear on it? I don't want to answer the wrong question. No, no, absolutely, absolutely. Why do we rely on small talk so heavily? Yeah, you know, the reason we rely on it is because it's really easy and it diffuses tension. People hate silence, right? And I'm not even quite sure why it's evolved. Probably because silence, we can't read anything. So when we're new with somebody, we want to get some baseline to be able to read them. This is just a theory. And so we ask them anything to get them talking. Hmm. And that's fine. That's social. It's not memorable. It's not interesting. Most sides probably regret having to do it, but it's quote unquote polite. So we do. Well, the other reason is because that's all we got. Our game's pretty weak, most of us, when it comes to conversation. So I often start conversations with something that's completely different. And you'll find that when you do this, what I'm about to tell you, you'll find that you make friends with people a lot faster. And it's not this, it's it's about vulnerability, but it's not this constructed vulnerability where I'm like, okay, everybody tell me something that you're struggling with right now. And you know, you look nervously at the person next to you and you're like, I do not want to do this, <laughs> right? You, you know, I, I wrote an article about this vulnerability trend, especially in California and among entrepreneurs where like, you'll be sitting at a table and someone's like, tell me your, uh, what you're dealing with right now. And one person will be like, okay. And then they go super deep and super heavy. And it's like, but it's like a constructed story to get everyone else to open up. It's like, my father died and da 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 da. And it's like, almost like they're giving a talk about it. Mm. And you can tell they've told the same story 48 times in the last year. And it's designed to get everybody else going. That we got to get rid of, right? But so, so I'm not talking about this. I'm talking about actually saying what's on your mind, whether or not it's something simple or or PC or not. And again, you're gonna wanna stay polite enough, but I will start a conversation with something like, okay, I really have to pee. Where is the restroom? And I don't care if someone's like, I can't believe he said that. That's not the type of person I ever wanna be around. They're too uptight, right? Screened, done. <laughs> but like, if we're getting, if I get off a bus and there's a bunch of other people who just got off a bus there, maybe not even the same one. And I say, okay, I really need to pee. Where's the restroom? There's gonna be a bunch of other people who have the exact same feeling, okay? And this isn't a tactical phrase. You can literally say this about anything. You see somebody with a weird looking dog in a hotel lobby, you can say, is it just me or is that dog really weird? And you can say it to a perfect stranger that you've never spoken to before and you're gonna relate on, yeah, that is weird. What is that, right? That You're gonna find a different commonality. Whereas if you just say, hey, raining out there, huh? Not only do you sound like you're from Minnesota or Michigan or somewhere else in the Midwest, like where I grew up, where you just make random comments on everything, <laughs> uh, it, it's small talk black belts over there. You get rid of that whole, that whole line of questioning, which results in basically nothing but a, yeah, see you later. Uh, you know, the kind of like very basic, we're kind of acquaintances now, I'll smile to this person in the hallway. You jump past that whole thing. And if you can do that at scale, you're gonna find that you have a lot of real friendships because you're. this is what authenticity really is. It's not this fake manufactured, oh, one day I felt bad about myself, so now I'm gonna make a YouTube video about it and, and then use it to like get people to relate to me because it's my story. Like there's so much of that on the internet. And I think a lot of people are falling for it, but a lot of people are getting over that crap really quick. This tactical use of 
a tragedy or something that's happened to somebody, it's couched as vulnerability, but really it's a feel sorry for me and then admire how far I've come. It's just a tactic. Yeah. And I think it's a little bit, I think it's a little bit uh, yellow belt if we're going to keep going with the karate analogies <laughs> here, uh, because it's sort of better than small talk, but barely. And I think over time, it's so ridiculously inauthentic that I know when I see stuff like that, I automatically run. You know, when there's a book that's about my struggle and how I became a blogger despite all the odds, I'm just kind of like, next. I don't even read the rest of the pitch in my inbox. I'll click delete on that ish because I know it's just a, how do I become a thought leader, Connor? Oh, I need, okay, I need the hero's journey. Oh, I guess my tragedy will be the story of insert some tragedy here that you never think about that's now gonna become the center of your life because it's your quote unquote story and then write a book about it and then leverage that for publicity, dot, 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 YouTube channel, right? Like <laughs> that's, that's what I'm seeing online with all these influencers and thought leaders. And so I kind of just do the opposite of what a lot of these folks are doing because you and I, and you and I talked about this pre-show, the way that this shows up on the Jordan Harbinger show as an interviewer is that I chose Charlie Rose over Jerry Springer, yeah. right? Like I'm, I don't care if what is said is gonna go viral because I'll get an email forwarded back from somebody else, forwarded back from somebody else that has like the White House looped in on the bottom. If you scroll down far enough in the chain and they're like really enjoying your analysis of Vladimir Putin's regime with a few people in the industry. I'm like, that means more to me than 800 high schoolers or 800,000 high schoolers saw your interview with some tennis player. Yeah. Well, you talked about how inspiring they are. Like it's, that's just junk food. I refuse to create junk food and small talk to bring it full circle is junk food. It's just that we often don't have any other snacks on hand because that's how we, we grew up doing that. Well, I think I think you're touching on a good point, right? Because it's it's not just junk food. A lot of it's inspirational junk food. And I think that a lot of people, you know, the self-help industry and the personal development industry has sort of ballooned so quickly and so rapidly that that is being consumed at an exponential rate. And I see a lot of people getting stuck in that. And, and I'm not going to go down that path because I, I actually had a different question, which which is along the lines of of language. And, you know, one of the things that that we talked about last time and that I found out about you that I found really interesting is that you speak multiple languages. And I'm curious how your study of different languages has formed how you have conversations. Yeah, that's a really good question. I do speak five languages, but I never think about how me knowing those structures my interviews. So my gut instinct is to be like, it doesn't, but that can't be true, right? Because we're dealing with spoken English and the fact that I know other language structures has to influence things somehow, but I'm not entirely sure how. I think, if anything, my language learning process has affected the way that I interview people because when you move to another country and you don't speak a lick of German, you've got to learn how to read nonverbal communication. Oh, gee, ver Germans are some of the most, I, I don't know what you would say, reserved people when it comes to nonverbal communication. This could be really tricky. So my year in Germany, going to a public high school in the former East Germany, which was not only in, of course, Germany, but also socialist. So like combine the, that, those types of cultures, I learned to read a lot of really subtle signals. And that nonverbal communications training comes in pretty handy now. Of course, 
speaking German fluently or more or less, not natively, but fluently enough to be conversational, uh, of course, and I can still do chemistry equations in German, I think, <laughs> probably can only do them in German now that I think about it. I, I find that those nonverbal signals and tonality and things like that has been honed really, really well. So I will listen very carefully and watch people very carefully during interviews and I use that. I'm not just going down a list of questions. You know, if somebody shifts in their seat and takes a deep breath and pauses or does even a 10% reaction like that towards a question or a statement, I know I've got something and I'm gonna tug on the fishing line and reel it in a little bit. Yeah. Whereas I think a lot of interviewers and I, myself included in the past before I really worked on this stuff would kind of most likely just let it go and go to their next question on the list. And I'm very, I've gotten very good or adept at looking at what people are doing, how they're reacting, the way that they're speaking, even the cadence in which they're saying something and going, there's more to this story and I know where to dig. It's like I'm knocking on drywall, right? And you hear the echoes change depending on where the studs are. I can find those in a conversation in real time. And I think that I probably got that skill not only from interviewing people for 12 freaking years, but also in language learning, having to deal with so many verbal and nonverbal signals all the time, as opposed to most humans who learn one language, we go through it when we're a baby and we kind of, that's kind of it, right? We don't really work on them that much after that. I've had to do that five times with five different languages. Yeah, no, I, you know, I asked the question because uh, like in my, in my past life, I was a classical singer and I learned German and Italian and French and, and like, I didn't, you know, unfortunately, I didn't go super deep in all of them, but I definitely got adept, quite quite adept with German, and I really loved it. And that that study, that curiosity of language, really shaped the way that I view English, the way that I view my own communication. And one of the things that I've really listened to in you, whether you're interviewing or whether you're being interviewed, is your use of things like analogies. And you're you're so quick at using a really like. First off, what's your process with coming up with analogies? Like, do you practice that shit beforehand or does it just come naturally? Is it is it practiced over time? Like, how, how did you develop the use of analogies and metaphors? I will tell you, and, and I hate when people say this kind of thing. So, you know, you owe me like a throat punch later because <laughs> I hate that I'm about to tell you this. But analogies are kind of like my superpower. I don't know where it comes from. I don't remember when it started. I just know that even when I'm interviewing some author uh, and they're an expert in, the, I, was, I remember interviewing Annie Duke, Thinking in Bets, and she talks about how poker players view probability and how different it is from how normal people view probability and how we can use this to mitigate cognitive bias. I know that sounds really heady, but basically how poker players don't delude themselves and are more accurate because they don't delude themselves and how we can do those same things, right? So I was asking her questions and she's telling me things and she's like, okay, this is this is a better explanation of my book than I could have created. And I, it was full of these different analogies. And she's like, can I steal these? And even off air, she goes, Seriously, though, like you won't be mad if I use these things, right? Because I'm thinking of throwing these in an article. I want to tell my publisher because this is exactly this analogy is exactly what I should have written in my book about this particular phenomenon. But I hadn't thought of it like that. And I kind of if we ever do a second edition, I want to actually use this in the book. And I was like, go ahead, because I literally came up with it in the middle of the sentence. You know, I'm not sitting here going, oh, this is kind of like this. Mm. I have show notes galore, but there is not one analogy 
in the show notes. It happens when I'm explaining a concept and teaching it in real time. And I think the reason must be because I think in analogies, I assume, right? Like I don't think, I don't think of processes or processes, as you would say, in the way that other people might. I think I have to relate it to something I already understand. Yeah. And that that's probably due to lack of imagination or or something, or I don't know where it comes from. Maybe I just have a very limited set of mental models, so I have to relate things to other things where I've where they've already sort of solidified or coagulated. But what I've found, and I think this is what you're getting at, is it that makes it a lot easier to teach a skill mm. because if you say yeah, you know, I'm doing this and this and this and this. And I go, oh, so it's kind of like when you have a lawnmower and the bag fills up with grass and then you empty it. And you're like, yeah, somebody knows how it feels to empty a lawnmower bag, right? Kind of like every every kid who's ever had to cut a lawn <laughs> in their life, <laughs> right? So everybody knows what that is, but maybe not everybody knows what it's like to get off antidepressants or something. Yeah. So I have to take that that whatever this person is explaining and punch it into an analogy, especially if I have not experienced it. Because if you tell me, and that's what it's like to get off antidepressants, well, I don't know, I've never been on antidepressants, so I'm gonna throw out some analogies, and if one of them is like, yeah, it is like wiping off your glasses for the first time in your life and not knowing they were dirty in the first place, it's like, oh, okay, great. I think a lot of people can kind of imagine what that's like, but I have no, I have no rubric system, measuring stick, whatever you wanna call it, for getting off of a pill that's addicting that made you think a certain way. Like, most people don't. Yeah. So that has become a really useful superpower, but I, I would say it's not something that's the result of, yeah, I'm so smart, I think of all this stuff. I think it's the result of me literally not having any other way to explain so many things in my life, and then having to think of that myself, and then just kind of saying what's going through my head to the audience at large. And I think that it just happens to be helpful for them too. Well, it's, I mean, what's really interesting for me is, is what came to my mind is that you're actually in a way reverse engineering language itself. Like language originated from pictures, right? From, from telling stories through picture analogies, basically. And so in some ways, it's almost like you're, in, you're like interpreting language through pictures, through that like old school version, that original origin story version of telling, you know, telling stories or communicating. Um, I don't know why, but that's what popped in my head. Whether it's true or not, I have no idea. Um, but but there it is. So yeah, I'll take it. Yeah. Sounds like a pretty good sounds like a pretty good pat on the back. I'll accept that. <laughs> well, okay. So so let's let's just you know I don't I know we don't have too too much time uh, left in the show, but but I wanted to circle back around to this this idea of nonverbal communication. And I know that there's a ton of information and, and resources out there and, you know, that you've taught this in the context of, of networking, in the context of meeting new people. Um, for you personally, what have been some of the most impactful nonverbal uh, tools that you've learned and implemented over the years? Sure. So n nonverbal, I mean, look, body language and nonverbal communication are extremely nuanced. I would say for me, learning how to keep people engaged and interested in a conversation has been something that I picked up from back in the day. I don't know if you were ever in like that whole pickup dating scene where it was like, hey, if you do this, she'll be interested that way. All of this stuff that I ended up kind of using to meet and, and attract my wife and getting really sick of that whole dating scene 
has actually come in pretty handy with interviews. And I remember I used to spend uh, an inordinate amount of time running around outside talking to women in my 20s because that was, you live in New York, you know, at the time, you can meet a lot of people doing that and it's nice out and you're gonna spend Saturday afternoon doing that and getting 40 phone numbers and then like five call you back, you know what I mean? So like, that that was the numbers game, but now I find, hey, I'm using a lot of this stuff, right? Like I'm using just the right of, amount of nonverbal uh, communication to make sure that I'm getting a point across, I can keep people's attention because that's always tricky when you're talking with somebody in the street. I know which way to face people in an interaction, not me personally, but you know, you don't want your guest, let's say, looking at the door or looking outside if you think that they're gonna be tight on time. You want them looking at you and having nothing else visually interesting behind you, ideally, so that they're really involved in the conversation. Uh, I look at the way that people act and react when I give them certain questions and looking at things like micro expressions, which are of moderate use, but also especially body positioning, you can find where people's sore spots are and you can back out or wind a conversation around something if you feel like it's gonna get them to clam up. So this is why, in part, I end up getting guests that say things like, I was not planning on talking about that today, or wow, I can't believe we went there. That's what I like. You know, I'm not trying to get people to cry or anything like that. I'm not trying to go for that kind of thing. I don't think that that's that useful. But I really am interested in making sure that I get the real story from people, and we all have our sound bites. And so things like that have been extremely useful. And you know, what I what I teach now with the networking and relationship development stuff, that's been really the, that's really the magic sauce that I wish I'd known, let's say 10 years ago. That's the stuff I think makes a huge difference. And I, I think if nothing else, verbal and nonverbal communication, that's been really the, the skill set that's made a huge difference. All right. So, you know, we were talking about a, a few different areas around whether you want to call it networking or just meeting people for the first time. Um, is there sort of like a do and a don't? Like, I know that we've talked about small talk a little bit, um, but what are what are some of the foundational pieces of what makes a good conversation when we first meet someone? So I, first of all, have to highlight the fact that networking is a dirty word. I get it. But... Yeah. This is like the one skill set, and I'll say networking slash making friends slash building relationships. This is the one competitive competitive advantage that has not melted away over the years. You know, when I was in high school, I was like, I'm kind of smart, I can coast. And then in college, I was like, I can outwork everybody, I'm good. In the in high performer land where we all like to live, really, it's about relationships. It's a skill that's highly prized. It's relatively rare, and it doesn't. It's scalable right? It's, you're not, you don't have to put in more hours of work to get further. You're leveraging other people's skill sets. It's a foundational skill of a business owner or of a human. It's not a bonus. It's not some people are good at it. Some people aren't. It's not a to-do list item. Go network. And the sad truth or the real truth anyway, I don't know if it's happy or sad, is that if you ignore the skill set, you're not immune to the consequences you're just being willfully ignorant of the secret game that's being played around you, right? Mm -hmm. So you can go, I don't wanna network, my work stands on its own, and I get that, I thought that for years, and then when somebody else gets a promotion you really should have gotten, you go, it's all about who you know, this is such bullshit, right? And then you just get sad about it, and you you curse the, the fates or the gods or whatever it is, and then you kinda go back to being like, well, 
I'm not recognized here. I'm going to leave and you're bitter about it, right? You know, like I'll go somewhere where my I'm appreciated. The problem with that is you're really, you, you can't really be immune and get around this. You can't not deal with it. You have to get good at it. Otherwise, you're always going to be saying it's all about who you know and putting stank on the end of it. You, people should be saying this about you. <laughs> and they should be saying, I'm really glad I know you because you know everyone. That's what you want to hear. And I've noticed that a lot of people who are really not that great at networking and relationship development are typically the people that think they're awesome at it. And so there's a level of self-awareness here, but I think that's combined with the idea that the bar is really low since most people will never even bother networking at all or building any relationships. Everybody thinks they're really good at it. So I want to highlight this with, if you're sitting here right now going, oh yeah, you know, I'm already pretty good at this stuff. Just bear in mind that the clients we have from the Jordan Harbinger show is my talk show, but we have a training wing called Advanced Human Dynamics. Our clients are like personal protection specialists that work for the top entrepreneurs in the world. And I'm talking about, I, I can't even say who they are, but it's everybody who's changing the world right now, their personal protection details, we train them. Um, special forces, intelligence agencies. Like these are the people that we're teaching these systems to. So if you're like, oh, I'm good, I know everyone, just bear in mind that your tax dollars are going towards making sure that really important relationships are being made using these skill sets. Because if you're anything like me, when you get a 10% competence, you're like, I am awesome at this. And then you get a 30% competence and you go, wow, I don't know a lot of stuff. <laughs> but in the beginning, it looks like you got it covered right? It's like that you don't know what you don't know type yeah. of uh, situation. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think I think one of those, like one of the biggest things that I've seen is that, you know, these these things can be used for good and, and used for bad. And you've, you've kind of touched on, a, on an interesting subject. So like, how have you seen these tactics used in mainstream media lately? Because I think one of the biggest, you know, without asking you directly about your opinion around like Donald Trump versus Obama or like, you know, Hillary Clinton or anything like that. How have you seen some of these some of these tactics used in mainstream media and 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 how do we become aware of them because it seems like there is this rising tide of not necessarily using these things to manipulate truth but inadvertently or advertently um, subtly shifting the truth so how have you seen this showing up lately in like the last year or two well, if we're talking about persuasion because I think that's a different subject you know when I'm talking about networking and relationship development it's more like this is how you meet people. This is how you get them to know, like, and trust you. This is how you stay in touch with these folks. Yeah. Um, but when we're talking about manipulation or whatever we're seeing, whatever it is that we're seeing from the media these days, I see that this is, honestly, I think a lot of the media, people will accuse it of being propaganda. If if it is that, then it's, not only is it pretty insidious, but it's uh, it's pretty transparent because I don't watch a lot of TV. I don't know if you do, and I, I doubt your audience really does. But when I turn it on, I'm always kind of like, does anybody believe this crap? This is so two-dimensional. How is nobody dealing with this? And what I realized is that the lack of critical thinking, the dearth of critical thinking is what allows this stuff to flourish. And, you know, networking and relationships aside, that's probably one of the raison d'etre of reason for being of the Jordan Harbinger show is you can really teach someone some basic relationship development skills, some basic critical thinking skills they'll take them to the next level by listening to the show over time. And then when they turn on regular quote unquote journalism or read uh, an article on BuzzFeed, you can poke so many holes in it before you even sat down to try that you realize how much of a waste of time 
consuming this sort of thing it really is. And then you get a feel for exactly how manipulable, if that's a word, um, people really are. I mean, people's mindsets are so malleable that it's it's quite scary because, you know, I look at my parents who are both educated, intelligent people, and I remember I told them I was watching Al Jazeera because they had more coverage of this thing that was going on. And they go, don't you worry about bias? And I was like, not really. It's an Arabic language news source. And I'm listening to an, a, a report about Lebanon. I mean, it's probably pretty balanced. And they're like, I don't know. It looks biased. And literally in that moment, and I can see this in my head in slow motion, they go to turn up Fox News that they're watching in the <laughs> background. And I was like, not ironic at all. What are you? I mean, you're worried about Al Jazeera being biased about an, some random thing about Lebanon. And then it's like Geraldo Rivera is on Fox News talking out of his ass about something. And I'm just <laughs> like, what? Like, you, even say what you will about Fox News, but Geraldo, you can't really argue with me is is just a, you know, there's this is not somebody who's fair, who's fair and balanced in anything that they do. So like, uh, maybe perfectly nice guy, not somebody I would trust to have vetted all the information exactly. No, no, no. But I think you bring up a good point around the differentiation between, uh, you know, between persuasion and networking. And I think inadvertently that that's actually what I was pointing at, because I think a lot of people hear net, things like networking skills, right? And it's like, oh, you're going to learn how to persuade people into what you want or sales tactic skills, right? Because there's a lot of people out there, you know, that, that, that are doing that. So how do you start to differentiate some of those things and, and sort of recategorize them? Oh, sure. So I think for networking and relationship development, this is all about digging the well before you're thirsty, right? Creating relationships when you don't have an agenda and you don't need anything. Uh, you and I were just talking before about a person who is kind of getting a bad rap recently for being all buddy-buddy with people when he needs something and then completely ghosting those same people when he doesn't. And so like, it becomes very transparent. People like that don't last a whole lot uh, or they learn their lesson and they're fine because it's all about not having that agenda, giving without the expectation or attachment of getting something in return and then realizing that fundamentally there's no difference between networking and making slash meeting friends. And this is the mindset that a lot of people need to change in in our head. This is the image that needs to change about networking, which originally for me and for a lot of other people, like I said before, is a dirty word, right? When I think of networking, I'm using this word so that people know what I'm talking about, but functionally, it's me going to dinner and I'm only gonna know one person and I make it a point to sit near that person, but also engage with every single other person at the table. And I'm often, you'll find me asking other friends and I'll say, hey, when you come into town, let's set up a breakfast with a bunch of your friends or something. So some entrepreneur lives in Portland, Oregon, will come to town and I'll say, hey, let's do a breakfast. Let me know if you need me to make a reservation. Why don't you invite five or so people? And then that's how I end up at brunches with like the founder of Twitter, the founder of Stripe, the founder of, you know, like I'm the guy sitting there and people are like, what do you do again? Oh, nothing of consequence. Okay, <laughs> fine. You know, it's it's interesting because I'm able to curate those groups, but really I'm not thinking one day I'm gonna get free Twitter. You know, I don't care about that. That's not what I'm after. I'm interested in the conversation. I'm interested in the connection. So I'm interested in helping those people get what they want. I have no idea what I would even ask most of the time. So Mm. you have to be careful because people who think they're good at networking, what they seem to think is I have a big Rolodex of people that I like that I can call or that I can say hi to. What we're really talking about here 
is how many people have you helped that maybe kind of owe you one and you haven't cashed it in or you're never planning to, right? Mm. That's what I'm looking for. I don't care how many people you know. I'm care, I care how many people know you and will say, that guy's a champ. Yeah, good dude. Because that's far more rare. Yeah. That is far more rare. And so that's the measuring stick. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, I, I think I've always tried to act in accordance with that. And it seems to have gone a long way. Doesn't mean I haven't pissed people off along the way. That's, that's for sure. Um, but I wanted to circle back around, you know, you, you're talking about uh, being able to invite people out, sit down, have a brunch, have a breakfast, you know, and that one friend that comes into town and you say, hey, invite out five people. How do you facilitate a conversation in a space like that? Because I think one of the things that most people get intimidated by is as soon as they are around other people that they perceive to be hierarchically above them, they start to panic. So uh, basically, like circling back on the question, um, how do you facilitate the conversation in that space? Or do you do anything special? I think that this is a really good question, because I've been thinking about this a little bit lately. One of the interesting angles that I can get that you can build over time is the fact that the person who knows the most people, quote unquote, or has the widest network, not just the deepest, I realize that I have a ton of value in that area. Secondly, being uh, somebody who's in media, I mean, the Jordan Harbinger show, a lot of these guys have listened to at least one over the last 12 years, or they've heard of it, or they have they know some of the guests that have been on the show. So that's credibility that normally you're not really gonna get in that area, right? Like, yeah, if you co-founded Stripe and then the other guy co-founded Twitter and then the other guy co-founded, you know, Creative Live, I don't know. You know, you've got these different founders here and I don't have to say, I co-founded this. I'm like, look, I interview the most brilliant people around. I just got back from talking with General McChrystal. People will pay attention because everybody, the media is so funny, right? It's kind of like the cheat code where, all of these rich people, I know people have so much money, it's bonkers, they literally don't know what to do with it, so they start charities and then they're like flying around all over the place. Every week they've got some sort of hoity-toity thing to do, they buy a yacht, all this stuff. A lot of these guys right now are calling me and saying, should I start a podcast, should I start a YouTube channel? I'm just thinking, what for? You have a $15 million house, What do you? why are you asking me this? <laughs> what are you talking about? And there's there's just one thing that's really hard to buy, which is respect of others. And so you could found this amazing nutrition company, and as soon as you leave the nutrition scene, nobody cares about you. So you start a YouTube channel and a podcast and social media, and you think, now I'm gonna get my foot in the door. And I, I ask this of people that have billion dollar companies, and I'm just thinking, how is it possible that you still have a problem with this? So media in many ways is like the cheat code, because some schmo like me who's got a podcast can walk in with a whole bunch of other creators or a whole bunch of other founders and they don't have to know exactly who I am. All they have to know is what influence there is because yes, you could be the CEO of a really big new startup, but your influence outside of that niche is very limited and you find, or at least in your mind, it's limited. And so you find that people who have this sort of wide influence, especially um, podcasters, big YouTubers, journalists, uh, interviewers, we have sort of like a, a little bit of a backdoor, you know, that that bulletproof vest that says press on it, it's supposed to not get you shot. You're the one running around in a riot with a camera. You know, it's kind of like that at the, at the dinner table. 
But what I will say for the rest of us who aren't planning on becoming a media icon in order to sit at the table with these folks is, you always have value if you have a wide and deep network. And that's a that's crazy because there's college kids that say things like, dear Jordan, I love your show, but here's the problem, I don't have any money and I don't know anyone. Well, your mission is to meet a, meet a bunch of people. Your value is you can connect those people to each other. You don't have to have your own freaking airplane. You don't have to have a bunch of money to donate. You just have to have people in your Rolodex that you can connect to other folks. That's all the value you need. And you can build that by just doing the legwork. Mm. So like, if I go to a brunch and I meet the founder of Twitter and I meet the, the founder of a nutrition company, the next time I have a brunch with different people, I can connect those people to those other people if I need to and if it makes sense, using things like the double opt-in introduction and things like that, that's my value. And so I don't have to say, look at me, I'm so important. All I have to do is say, hey, I've got somebody who can help you, here's who they are. I've got them in my phone, do you want me to ask them for an introduction? Those people, those busy, rich, successful people would still have to do legwork to get that and here you are with that on a silver platter in the middle of brunch. That's your value. And so I don't worry about, oh, I don't have anything to say. I've got plenty to say in, in these conversations and I have plenty of value to offer just because I'm not, the, I'm the only billionaire not, or who's not at the, or the only non-billionaire at the table or the only non, you know, nine-figure earner at the table. I really don't even think about it. All that does is it means that um, I'm sure as shit not picking up the check. Mm, I love that because, you know, in many ways, you're like reconstructing influence in, in some ways or, or, or at least looking at influence from a different perspective. So from from your perspective, just from what you've seen in terms of influence, because you've, you've touched on it a few times now and, you know, we've talked about networking and connecting with people. How important is language when it comes to influence and, and actually being influential with other people? You know, it doesn't play as big of a role as I think a lot of authors and thought leaders might have on this. Sure, we want to be speaking in downward tones instead of question tones. We don't want to have that that question tone where we don't sound sure of ourselves and all that. And yes, we want to say the right things to signal professionalism and, and intelligence. But beyond that, I think there's a there's the sort of undercurrent of, ooh, if you use these keywords, people are going to think more of you and like, oh, if you do this hypnosis technique, people are going to take you more seriously. There's <laughs> not only is there no science behind that, but I think it's probably completely made up. And I think it's made up from people that see the world in flowcharts. Not that there's anything wrong with those people. I believe they're called engineers and we need them. But f as far as EQ is concerned, there's a lot of overthinking when it comes to this. And I think people are constantly trying to wind the conversations to a specific goal and get people to do things in a certain way and make it see, kind of cover it up a little bit. All of that, in my opinion, is largely unnecessary when you have a real source of value to offer. I don't have to worry about like, gee, what I wanna do is play this chess move and then that chess move and then they're gonna do this and I'm gonna do one of two things and then dot, 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 I'm gonna get an introduction to this guy. I'm literally just, and this is as simple as it gets, looking for ways in which I can help everyone at the table. And usually, especially if everyone around me is higher level, it's gonna be connecting them with other people that are higher level as well. And it's that simple. If I spend time listening to their needs and, and eliciting those, I don't need to figure out if I can get them to run through the invisible rat maze of getting to do what I want in, in, in the conversation right? I'm just looking for how I can help them. That agenda 
is the only agenda that's really going to come through as authentic and not ring any alarm bells, especially on people that have people asking them for crap all day, every day. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say like the one thing, like the one thing that I would add to that is, is stop asking people. And the, obviously, this isn't for you, but for the listeners, but stop asking people what you can do for them. I think you know, I think there was a culture at some point where we were taught to ask people how we can help them. And I feel like the the more and and maybe you disagree with this, and I would love to get your perspective on this. But I've found that. I found that the more influence, the more connections you have, the more that you have people reaching out asking, what can I do for you? How can I help you? And it's like, I don't know. And even if even if I did, it's sometimes it's challenging to be able to give that to you, you know? Mm -hmm. So from from your perspective, what's a better way to go about it than reaching out to somebody and saying, hey, how can I help you? Yeah, yeah. So I, I see this a lot. When somebody, this is the best of intentions, right? Somebody totally. says, Somebody says like, oh, I've, I've heard all these people, these entrepreneurs talk about how everyone's asking for stuff. I'm going to be different and be like, what can I do for you? But here's the problem. You're just taking that exact same monkey and you're just throwing it back onto my back. Yeah. Why do I have to think of how you can help me? I have no idea who you know. Oh, nobody? Well, gee, let me think harder. That's not my job, right? If you're reaching out to me in my inbox, it's not Elon Musk's job to figure out how you can help him. It's literally your job, if you're reaching out to somebody, to think about what they have, look at perceived weakness or need, right? And what they have, like, hey, Jordan, I noticed that you have this. I took the liberty of mocking, like, hey, look, I noticed on your website that a lot of people who don't know how to listen to podcasts can't get the show. I assume you've, you maybe have thought about this. If not, I have some ideas. And then I'll reply, sure, what are your ideas? And they say, cool, I noticed there's no page that explains to people who don't know how podcasts work how to listen to the show. Uh, and today we put up a how to listen page specifically for this. But if somebody had come to me with that, I would have gone, oh yeah, that's true. And then they can go, well, since I'm a web designer, I decided to take your current design and whip up a little mock-up of what that page might look like. It would be mobile responsive and I think it would really help. You could link to it from your Instagram profile or something like this, right? So that's super helpful and I could say, sure. And then they can they could say, if you want me to make it, just say the word yes and I'll get right on it and then you can have your web person install it. So this person who makes websites all day could probably have somebody on their team whip that thing up in like five seconds, send it over to me and then I could have my tech people plug it into the website. As you can tell, I have no idea how websites are created, but I do know that there are mock-ups and that people essentially remake those pages, right? So that sort of perceived need can be filled by somebody who's in that niche. And they're not saying, how can I help you? Well, gee, there's 87,000 things I've thought of in the past year that could make my business better. Let me present all of them to you and then maybe you'll like one. Why is that my job? No, I'm, you're not my employee. I'm not going to manage you. I'm not going to assign something that's within your capability. And I know it's a good intention, but that's what you're asking me to do. You're asking me to manage you as essentially an intern. Hey, can you do this? Not really. Hey, can you do this? Not really. And I get this all the time. I remember even recently, this guy was like, hey, Jordan, I'm completing a college program. I'm ex-military, special forces. I'm highly qualified to do X, Y, Z. And I was wondering if you had any internships. And I said, not really. What are you thinking about working on? And they said, I'm thinking about doing this. I could pretty much do anything you guys want. I'm a writer. I've got this, that, and the other thing. And I said, actually, we're looking for ABC. And it was like something 
you know, that I would have gladly hired an intern to do. And he said, no, not really interested in that, looking more to do writing and stuff like that. And I was like, not interested. And then, you know, that was it. And then he kept emailing me like, hey, hey, can we figure this out? Hey, I'm really interested. Hey, I might go with someone else. And I'm just thinking, do you not get that you blew it already? I don't understand how this is not something you under, I don't get why you're not understanding this. I'm not here to think of the job for you. And this is advice for entrepreneurs or potential interns, people looking for jobs. It is never the person's job to figure out what you can do. You have to assess the needs of the place where you're going. You have to propose the solution. You have to do the legwork to come up with a mock-up or a plan for the solution. And then if you're lucky, that person will ask you to implement it. That is how you make yourself useful, especially in an entrepreneur world. It, it, we're not, tr I'm not in the business of trying to figure out where people fit into my organization, right? You have to prove that I can't afford to not hire you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that's so powerful, man. And I think we'll we'll probably end it there because that you know that's such sage advice, and I, and I just love the caveat that you put at the very beginning, which is look, we all understand that everybody coming from this space has really really healthy intentions, and that they have good intentions, and that they that they want to support and help. So I, I really really appreciate that. Yeah, thanks. I really I, again, I don't want to seem like wow, that guy went off in a rant. What an egomaniac! Oh no, I want people to know this because I realize that the best people are coming and going, how can I help you? Yeah. Right, everybody else is like, I need a job. And I'm like, good for you, delete, <laughs> right? You know, somebody who says, hey, how can I help you? They're the, they wanna help out because they love what you're doing. They're willing to do pretty much anything. I lo we love those people. The problem is I just don't have the bandwidth to come up with a job for them. So go the extra mile and come up. People think, oh, but if I come up with a solution and then he doesn't need it, he's just gonna delete the email or say like, no thanks or something along those lines. That may well be true, but you're gonna come across as much more competitive if you come, come in with something that I think, oh, you know, I don't need that, but I like where your head's at. At least then you got your foot in the door. Totally. But if you come in asking me to do the work for you, I already know that you're going to be such a pain to manage, not because you're a pain in the butt as a person, but because you don't get the culture yet. And so the best intentions aside, I'm going to pass. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I, like I like I said off air, like I used to work for Apple and and time and time again, that kind of stuff would happen. And then as an entrepreneur, you know, having this, having just people reach out time and time again and and speaking with more and more entrepreneurs, it's, it seems to be like one of the biggest challenges. So I love the advice that you gave. And just, just out of curiosity, do you have time for one more selfish question? Sure. <laughs> my, my selfish question is, is what's one of the favorite conversations that, that you've got to have? And it doesn't have to be in your show. It can be just in life in general. Hmm. I know that's, I know that's kind of putting you on the, on the spot. So maybe I'll just kill some time here to let you think about it and I'll ramble aimlessly. <laughs> sure. You know, I really, I think that I think that one of the, man, it's so hard. It's like choosing kids. I know, you know? I like, know. It's like the, what's your favorite movie converse, question, which I, which I absolutely freaking hate, but I, I, you know, I ask it because you've interviewed so many incredible people and you've traveled and you've studied language and I'm sure that you've had some absolutely amazing conversations. And so I was just curious, you know, what, what's one that's just sort of stood out for you and, and impacted you in some way? Yeah, you know, I think one of the ones that this is recent, so there's a little recency bias here, but I interviewed Robert Greene, that episode just came out, 
and his new book, The Laws of Human Nature. It's incredible. It's a 29 hour audible book if, to give you an idea Damn. of length. Most books are like seven hours or eight. Yeah. So and he had just had a stroke and he's only doing a handful of shows. And so I flew down to L.A. I went to his house got kind of the tour, got a really good feel for the environment in which he does his research and his writing and everything. And I'm just like, this is a true master of the craft. Like he sold 30,000 books the first week. <laughs> that's crazy. You know how ridiculous that is? That's like, you need like five or 6,000 to hit the New York Times list. 30,000, I mean, talk about, it's like going to the fair and that hammer where you hit the little, the little, whatever it's called, yeah. the thermometer goes up and hits the bell. This is like the cartoon version where you whack it with the hammer and the bell shoots off the thing because yeah, totally. it hits it so hard. Like that, that's real, real book sales right there. And so Robert Greene's amazing because we talk about modifying your behavior, what causes certain types of behavior, what causes us to be so easily manipulated as humans, how our emotional baggage from childhood dictates who we are as adults and how those patterns show up. Mm how we tend to fall into our lower nature, AKA our sort of dark side or shadow. And this is a guy who spent years researching this stuff. I mean, as you might know, 48 Laws of Power was his previous breakout hit. That came out a long time ago, but that's very popular in like business and in prisons. Yeah, Like it's the legit, here's what, it's the raw source code of the dark side of humanity in a lot of ways. And he wrote that and that was what really catapulted everything. And you can't argue, and this is his newest one. And in many ways, he says his life's work culmination. I can't recommend this interview highly enough. Robert Greene, it's episode number 117 of the Jordan Harbinger Show. And this is the most comprehensive interview he's ever done on this. Incredible, incredible. Well, thank you so much for that recommendation. I'm, I'm personally gonna go check that one out. Um, I actually just got the audiobook the other day. Um, so yeah, <laughs> so, so, so good. Thank you so, so much for being on the show with me here today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, man. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate the opportunity to speak to your audience as well and and tell them about the Jordan Harbinger show because that's, look, you and I both know it's all about the number of years that that have that you have attention. Like attention is the new currency yeah. in this economy. So I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. And for all the listeners, if you enjoy my show, definitely go check out Jordan's show. He's got some amazing, amazing guests uh, on his show. And as you can tell, he's a great storyteller, a great communicator, a great conversation. So if you enjoyed this, definitely go uh, check out his show. We'll have the link in the show notes for you to go check out. Uh, and if you enjoyed this podcast episode, definitely man it forward, share it with just one person in your community and your network that would enjoy this, uh, enjoy this show. And until next time, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next time for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. Mm -hmm.